My oh my, how the time does fly. How suddenly we move from summer right into the first week of September. Almost like summer wasn't even really there. Speaking of things that are no longer there, that's a nice little tease for our first issue. Issue, you might ask? Ah, well, without knowing it, you might have unexpectedly, unwittingly, unknowingly stumbled into the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack. This is episode number 25. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and each and every week I go to that transdimensional, otherworldly place where a spinner rack spins, loaded down with all of the comics published this week, just like each and every week, by DC Comics. I get to pick five, share them with you, and talk to you about why I think they are the best picks for this week, just like each and every week. Without much more ado, let's go ahead and dive into my first choice, which would be, and I know I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, and I've accepted that, so I appreciate you joining me in The Dreaming, number nine, in a story titled Tikkun, The Rectification, written by Simon Spurrier, with art by Danny, colors by Matt Lopes, letters by Simon Bolin, with a cover by Yannick Paquette and Nathan Fairburn. The Dreaming was created by Neil Gaiman. In this issue, which I had a lot of fun reading and I'm happy to share with you, and we open with a support group, one that is there to help previously known folk tales, folk characters, folk entities, deal with the fact that people no longer know who they are, and that the longer they go without knowing who these folk characters are, the less power the folk characters have, and gradually, as they become forgotten, they too forget what they were, what they are, and disappear. The support group has a great name called End of Life, Folk That, and they meet every Thursday at 7 p.m. Now, many of the characters are only known to those who have a, a deep history of folk, but at least one or two, at least one or two have that sense of familiarity. There's Colorado Buffeo, who's the chair, Nikki Powler, Sheila Nagig, Lily, Long Lugs, GM, otherwise known as the Green Man, Miss Blackbeard, and Gentle Gellin. Some of these characters are very obscure in my mind. Gentle Gellin is, according to at least a webpage, a creature in British folklore associated with the sea, often depicted as a herring gull or a chimera with human and avian attributes. There's a little bit more to the description, but not much, which brings up an interesting point within the story, which is that along with the forgetful nature of human beings and their ability to remove certain things from the common conscious, is the knowledge shared by the group that someone is deleting the Wikipedia pages for these characters. And when that happens, less information is available about them to be shared with the public. And because of that, 
their ability to remain relevant or even known continues to diminish. Many of the characters have tried to find ways to cope or console themselves, but in the end, they struggle with the fact that aside from the green man, who was lucky enough to have a number of cheap, as they're called, statues, as well as pubs named after him, has continued to have a form of existence. Although to the group, when they do bother to join him at one of the pubs named after him, they decide that overall, he is still just a, a raw kind of brutish version of whatever he used to be. At one point, it's suggested that he might have been a god of harvest or fertility, and now he just does his best to live up in the moment and be the bell of the ball. The story takes a really great twist when one of the members decides that it's time for them to do something, and when Nikki makes his decision, the others like the idea, but they're confused about how to proceed until they come across an upcoming Pride Festival. And recognizing that it has many of the qualities that they believe they want to embrace as well. Freedom, the ability to be oneself without fear or provocation or other conflict. They join in and they're so moved by the experience that they begin to manifest their true natures, their most bizarre selves, their most legendary folk characteristics. And it's a wonderful beautiful party, one that they all enjoy. But to their dismay, instead of reinvigorating their identities, there's simply no mention of them in the newspapers, all the selfies and pictures that they took with others are not appearing on social media or with the hashtags that they thought they would be attached to. And it's a really sad recognition that despite their best efforts, they are still unknown to the world at large. And because of that, they continue to be forgotten. In fact, this takes on a really interesting twist with that list of members in the group and how at one point they even begin to forget who each other is and who actually is a member of the group. And this affects how they update that list of members. Really great story here. One that I felt that was masterfully told one by introducing the concept of the support group and then revealing the nature of the need for the support, but then also lumping it in with many other groups that we know exist but probably don't spend nearly as much time thinking about, whether it's bowel cancer or the next support group that will be coming in after that to use the space that they take advantage of meeting in in order to keep their group alive, which seems to be the focus of all support groups. How do you keep living when you're facing something that seems like it's going to win in the end and that otherwise there's simply no way to feel like you can actually resist it or fight back against it? The art in this story really gave it that wonderful, mysterious, and otherworldly quality. I thought it was perfectly captured. I thought the the lines from the pencils and the inks that match them created a really great shading and tone. I also felt that the colors 
were bright and vibrant and yet also dark and dreary and there's a few underwater scenes that are really quite gorgeous and the the nighttime feel of the blue green of water and the sort of otherworldly feeling that it creates when reading this issue really made this a lot of fun for me to sort of just sink into and then also sort of find myself feeling a bit of empathy a bit of understanding that much like anyone else we're all going to feel a time when we are well recognized by those in the world that we are a part of or the world that we have created around us and then at some point that world will change and it's going to be harder to be recognized i'm always amazed by this great quote i believe it was doris lessing who said and then suddenly without warning or advance notice you become middle-aged and invisible and there's a wonderful freedom that exists in that and yet despite that freedom for these characters it's actually become more of a prison one that they struggle to escape and despite their best efforts are unable to really do much more about than worry wonder and wait I thought this was a really perfect story and a great example of this world that Neil Gaiman created with the dreaming. How it's a place that the immaterial has created a world within and that also gives the characters of that world a place to tell the stories that, because in so many ways they've become forgotten, are now able to continue a renewed life through the imagination of this really great team. I thought this was a solid 5 out of 5 and a great way to kick off episode number 25 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Our next book up, in no specific order, is Justice League number 31. I really enjoyed Justice Doom Part 2, as written by Scott Snyder and James Tynan IV. Jorge Jimenez on art did a wonderful job in collaboration with Alejandro Sanchez on the colors, Tom Napolitano on the letters, Francis Manipal on the cover, and Julian Totino Tedesco with the variant cover. The things that keep happening in this issue just twist, pull, and spin the story ever onward, ever more chaotically, ever more wondrously down this great rabbit hole that I am happy to follow. At this point, the Legion of Doom has begun working in collaboration with the revived Perpetua, who is nearly at her full strength, and everything that the Justice League is attempting to do is falling apart. A journey into different timelines in order to retrieve shards, including one associated with the Cosmic Rod from the original Starman, as I know him, the original Starman, and other such pieces might be the only hope that the Justice League has to try and stop the Legion of Doom from remaking the universe in Perpetua's image. I'm intrigued by this great sort of story. I didn't really touch on this from last week because Justice League number 30 wasn't in my choices for the spinner rack and also because part of me didn't want to address that issue uh, since it had this great reveal at the end. A reveal that brings up one of my favorite comic book teams, the Justice Society of America, who meet the time-traveling Flash and John Stewart Green Lantern, both of whom have no idea about who the Justice Society is, 
nor does the Justice Society have any recollection of Barry Allen or John Stewart. And there's a great moment when the two flashes and the two green arrows distinctively say to each other that they are the only ones to bear that name. There's a little bit of sort of humor that I had a chance enjoying from this, but quickly we spin to Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, who, following a timeline to the future, hope to find the other shard. But something's gone wrong. And instead, they come to a future that's been destroyed where they meet Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, and then discover that everything that's happening to them has to do with Brainiac. And that Brainiac has much in the, the sort of theme of his bottled cities plan from his earliest versions. This Brainiac has been capturing and bottling possible futures, including the one that they're in right then. And that Batman's awareness of this means that everything about their mission will have to change. At the same time, the present day Justice League team members, Starman, Kendra, and others, have been working with the World Forger and the Monitor to build a ship that can take them out to the end of the universe where they hope to find the Anti-Monitor. But Shane, the future possible child of Martian Manhunter and Kendra, has been able to use a link to his father's DNA, which is now merged with Lex Luthor, in an attempt to track what the Legion of Doom might be doing. And it turns out that while Justice League might now have a ship that can take them where they need to go, Lex Luthor and his team are already on their way. Two great sort of endings to the timeline, stories, and sets up for the end of this issue into the next. First with the recognition that the Justice Society teamed up with Flash and Jon Stewart are about to involve themselves in the attack on Pearl Harbor, of which the Zero fighters from Japan are flown by members of the Legion of Doom who seem all too aware and almost too overjoyed at the idea that they will be wiping out all of the heroes below them and that they are marking the beginning of the end for the Justice League. In the future, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman have found a future that now also includes machines from Brainiac and the Justice Legion A, who I remember from way back with Grant Morrison's One Million series. I really loved the way that Tynan and Snyder have been pulling all of these pieces from different elements of DC lore, whether it's continuity, Elseworlds, or a combination of the two, getting the chance to see so many different versions of characters appearing and also raising the questions of why it is these characters aren't aware of each other or have a, a faint sense of understanding about each other or maybe even uh, a hint, like a, a deja vu feeling. I really enjoyed that this issue seems to push an idea that I, I remember hearing from a writing instructor once. And it was this idea that 
what you really want to continue to do with the story in order to keep the reader's attention is to introduce a series of situations that by their very nature are unsustainable and then with that knowledge and making that knowledge clear to the reader continue to push the characters along with the knowledge that that unsustainability will at some point come to a crux within the story but that until it does the characters are going to plow ahead and that the story will continue to drive forward it appears to me that Snyder and Tynan have no problem continuing to pile on and what's amazing is that one of the best things that I've enjoyed about this issue is the way that the art has matched the magnitude of the story being told in Justice League. And without failure, this great art team does an amazing job of capturing not only the spirit, feeling, and atmosphere of 1940s Justice Society characters, the sort of glow, the sort of hue, and then at the same time in the future, this grim conceptual uh, identity attached to both the characters like Kamandi and then later with Brainiac and then for the uh, one million Justice League team the Justice Legion A this was just a lot of fun for me I really enjoyed everything that this issue continues to do Justice League is normally a kind of a standard on the uh, spinner rack but every once in a while I find something new that gives me a chance to bring another story into the collection for that week. More often than not, though, I'm usually, if not picking Justice League, I'm usually thinking of it as an honorable mention. And every time I get a chance to feature it, I get the chance to talk about the great storytelling, the amazing art team that supports it and makes the vision and the concept seem real and really a part of the reading experience. Overall, it's really easy to go through this book love so much about it and then say to myself yep it's another five out of five it's not even a question now i will say that i did leave off the fact that on the final page there is a very interesting discussion at the end of the universe which is the former location of the source wall who's there well for that you're gonna have to read the issue to find out but while you're scrambling around for that or figuring out where to pick it up or how you're going to read it, I'm going to take a moment for us to pay some bills and provide you with a little bit of information about all the things going on here at DC Comics News. It's a quick ad, and we'll be right back with choices three, four, and five. Thanks for hanging with us. Hi, everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News podcast, here every week to talk everything DC, movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher, and everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. <laughs> <laughs> no.
Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. Thanks for your patience, and we hope you enjoyed all the information that was provided in that great ad break. We're going to move right in to my third choice for the DC Comics New Spinner Rack, episode number 25. Now, much like the number 25, whether it's an episode or an issue, is considered one of those milestones on the way to 50, 75, 100, and beyond. There's also this concept that exists in the Maxi series, which is not only the first issue, but the final issue, and in my opinion, the issue right before that. For my third choice for the DC Comics new spinner rack, I'm talking today about Doomsday Clock, number 11. This 12-issue Maxi series, written by the amazing combination of writer Jeff Johns in collaboration with illustrator Gary Frank, colors by Brad Anderson, Rob Lay on the letters, with Amy Brockaway Metcalf providing the back matter design, and Gary Frank and Brad Anderson on the cover and variant cover, Doomsday Clock has taken concepts that have always existed within comic books and continued to twist them. Much of it appears to be the machinations of Adrian Veidt and his ability to see the world that he arrived at early on in this series and understand enough of it to begin putting into play a master plan. The result in issue number 11 is that Superman is wanted by the international community for either aiding and abetting or at least failing to prevent an attack that resulted in what's believed to be the injury and later the death of Russian citizens, as well as the attempt by the Justice League to go off planet to find a solution considered to be an act to delay or buy time by many of the world's communities. A gathering of superheroes in Kandak or Kandak, in what appears to be a response to revelations that the U.S. government had been secretly manifesting, creating, or fostering the development of superhuman characters that it would use eventually in what it believed to be an upcoming or eventual global conflict. Now because of this, many of the citizens of the world are caught sort of in the middle and the uncertainty about it has created questions about what is happening to what had seemed like a very constant or understandable existence but instead has become something that has become really completely confusing. And through it all, we are also given the chance to sort of see who in 
the larger scale of things, has been paying attention. Among them, Lex Luthor, while walking with Lois Lane, reveals that he's found a series of clues in the form of pictures that point to a character that the rest of us know to be, that so far has been revealed to be some of the evidence left behind by Dr. Manhattan. Along with this is the continued storyline of characters like the new Rorschach, Saturn Girl, and Alan Scott, the original, in my opinion, again, Green Lantern, according to continuity, and revelations about what it is exactly both Dr. Manhattan and Adrian Veidt are attempting to accomplish. And now there's a sort of a, a moment that's been building and one that will eventually come to fruition and it's a pivotal moment that the final chapter hinges on superman meets dr manhattan and beyond that moment dr manhattan who has always had the ability to see the far future and the distant past is unable to see what the possible future might be after he and Superman meet. He has been wanting this moment to come, but how much of it has also been the result of the strings that Adrian Veidt has been pulling? We're going to have to find out in issue number 12. Doomsday Clock has been one of those seminal works that so often take comic books and challenge them, much like the original Watchmen by Alan Moore, accomplished when it first appeared. Doomsday Clock makes it so easy to give this book a solid 5 out of 5. The storytelling has been exquisite, and the art that has matched it has captured a timelessness that feels so both real and unbelievable that it pulls at the imaginations in all the best ways. So again, it's easy to give this book a solid 5 out of 5. And it also makes me wonder if this episode number 25 is going to be all about the fives. My fourth choice is Lois Lane, number three, another of these 12-issue maxi-series, and another that I've continued to enjoy and been thoroughly impressed by. I really enjoyed the way this story picks up right where the last story <laughs> left off. And at the end of chapter two, of which this now is chapter three, of enemy of the people. The tenacity of Lois Lane had led her to connect with a source who was willing, after some impressive leveraged pressure, to meet with her at a location that she and Renee Montoya, who has been wearing the question mask during this issue, both believe is a trap. That rings true when an assassination attempt is made Lois's source is killed, she is unharmed, and it's unclear whether or not she was the intended target. But this issue by Greg Rucka, featuring art and cover art by Mike Perkins, colors by Paul Mounts, letters by Simon Boland, and a variant cover by Sana Takeda, begins with the investigation following this attack, and also the awareness of Lois that something is happening around here. There's two or three panels where a blur of motion that feels like just streaming light or some sort of super power is at play. And it's only after 
looking at it through that idea that the sense that Superman, who can move at super speed, is able to zoom in and out and do his own investigation. But then, despite all that subtlety, he makes a very public appearance floating in the sky right nearby. This leads to a great conversation between Lois and, well, first Superman and Rene Montoya, who eventually leaves that conversation to just the two of them. Now, the conversation doesn't pick up right away. Superman knows how to get his best footing by keeping Lois off her balance and taking her up into the sky, something that as he's attempting to do it, she points out he's only doing so that she won't get mad at him and because she knows he knows how much she loves flying. I think this was a really sweet moment, a beautiful panel on page nine of just classic Superman Lois taking to the sky. She's not shy and hasn't been up until this point about her feelings and whether it's calling Superman a jerk or telling him that he needs to pay bigger and better attention Lois lets Superman know and then helps him also realize that his actions have actually brought more pressure on both of them. Not only the alleged affair that a picture of them kissing has been alluding to and also led to a break in the relationship publicly between Lois and Clark Kent, but also how now there's even more pressure I think for Lois, with the knowledge that anyone who has been targeting her might have thought that Superman would show up, but now knows that he will. And because of this, they're going to change their tactics, their attempts, and this might make it harder for Lois and Renee to anticipate where the next move might be coming from, or just how dangerous it might be. It's a really great moment that illustrates how Lois has really just a better head on her shoulders when it comes to what she's doing as a reporter and also their relationship not only the one that lois has with superman but the one that she had created with clark kent and for me just as a married guy it's one of those moments where i just have to smile because it feels like whenever i think i know what's going on either in a conversation an argument or any other sort of engagement with my wife that there are so many moments when she lets me know just how much more she understands of what's going on and how little I've actually either been paying attention or actually understood what I thought I knew. <laughs> Another great moment in this one is the discovery of the other question, the original question. See, for me, there was this great moment when I got a chance to read the 52 storyline in which the mantle of the question was passed from Vic Sage, as he was called by Rene Montoya, Charlie, on to Rene Montoya. And now, the two of them, after getting into a fight, both agree to remove their masks. This comes after they both take the same fighting stance when squaring off with each other, and then point out that it's a bit awkward. When they remove their masks, Renee points out that Charlie, as she called him, died, to which he gives one of the best question responses. Yeah, I know. Too many questions. I really loved this moment. I thought it was perfect, and I thought it was a great way to sort of answer the question. 
Of course, what we've led to now are more questions, but I really think this was a great way to start answering them. And even if not, well, to introduce the idea that everything that had been understood so far, or maybe either believed or assumed to be understood, still has some explaining to do. And because of that, we're going to learn more about this new relationship between the two questions, and also just what happened to the first question after it appeared that he had died way back in the 52 series. Many of these issues have ended on a bit of a cliffhanger, which is why for Lois Lane number two, I didn't mention as much about the attack or the fallout that would be coming from it. Similarly, this issue ends with a very interesting scene that I could give away. And yet I feel after talking about Vic Sage, the question, Renee Montoya, and that bit of history, that this is one of those things that should be discovered by the reader. If for no other reason than that it's going to lead directly into next issue, and that's a moment I don't want to take from you, but I do want to let you know, so far, with our fourth choice out of the way, it is a five out of five, and so far, episode number 25 is all fives. Are we going to find ourselves there with my fifth choice? We're just about done. The question, unlike some others, is about to be answered. I think the answer might be yes, because my fifth and final choice for this week, again, in no particular order, but of course, sometimes I try and leave the best for last or the more interesting. Time will tell if I'm actually successful or if that's just something I'm making up. My fifth and final choice is Legion of Superheroes, Millennium Number 1. I really enjoyed this story. Brian Michael Bendis has been doing many different things within the DC Universe, and it feels that this is a moment when he is pulling some of those elements into a larger story and bringing in some characters that he's introduced and taken to great depths and lengths to more prominent roles within these larger narratives. He's joined by an amazing team, pencilers including Jim Lee, Dustin Wynn, Andrea Sorrentino, and Andre Lima Araujo. Inkers like Scott Williams, Dustin Wynn, Andrea Sorrentino, and Andre Lima Araujo. Alex Sinclair, John Kalis, Dave Stewart, and Jordi Belair on the colors with Dave Sharp handling the letters, Ryan Sook with that amazing cover, and equally amazing variant cover by Brian Hitch and Alex Sinclair. There's a bit of a mystery going on in this Legion of Superheroes Millennium number one. It's one of two, and it's going to spin into, well, if you've been paying any attention to the sort of news that's been coming out about DC Comics and Bendis appearing on late night talk shows to talk about the Legion of Superheroes. They're coming back. And this two-part introduction is the way he's bringing them, in my opinion, folding them back into the DC Universe that so far has yet to feature them since its rebirth. 
We start with the mystery of the character of Rose Forrest, who has an alter ego named Thorn, and who has been involved in a couple of situations where she's bitten off more than she can chew. She tells her story in the beginning of this book to the Madam President, who looks a lot like Supergirl. You'll have to tell me whether or not I'm right on that. Now, the story continues on, and as it does, this mystery gets deeper and deeper into a few questions, like how is it that this Rose was able to live during a time when Supergirl was just a very young woman, and yet now that she is clearly much older, if that is her as Madam President, well, Rose does not appear to have aged one day, if at all. Why is that? And what does it mean for Thorn, who we get a chance to see sort of smacking around the Batman Beyond Star, the newest member to wear the mantle in his own storylines, Mr. Terry. Their interaction is almost if not more priceless than the engagement with Supergirl. Now, the story continues along with Rose moving constantly through time. And we see her later around Kamandi, and then again when she has reached a future plane where she's now even farther along into this question about what's been happening with her age and her life. It has to do, interestingly enough, with the fact that the medication for a condition that she has is no longer being made, and that for all this time the medication has kept the Thorn personality from existing. Rose has built a quiet life for herself, far north and away from any sort of incident that would bring about a resurgence of Thorn or lead to the, the need for her to appear. Now, I like this twist with the medication, but the, the real sort of bonus is when she suggests that the time that Thorne has spent away might make her angry or even more powerful, and that Rose herself is terrified of what will happen should Thorne return. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger as we move from issue one and issue two, and I'll sort of leave that for you for the discovery. But I think that this first issue of Millennium really does a great job of reflecting not only the journey of this character, but as she moves through time, the art team does this amazing job of presenting a near future, a farther future, a future where I've only seen some stories take place, but now it seems like everyone is visiting Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, and a final glimpse of the future that reminds me of so many of the stories about the Legion of Superheroes that I enjoyed when I was first discovering the characters. In each time zone, the atmosphere is perfectly shaped by the art team, between the colors, the tone, the pencils, which give this, you know, very specific shape, and the inks, which add that extra layer of detail that sharpens those distinctions. 
this was a really wonderful book, one I had a blast reading, one that left me waiting excitedly, somewhat patiently, mostly impatiently for part two of Legion of Superheroes Millennium. It should maybe come as no surprise, given I didn't really mention any negative qualities, that this book is a solid five out of five, which means yes, this episode, episode number 25, the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, has been all fives. But then again, five books, scores of five, five times five, 25. I guess in that sense, it does all add up. I'd like to thank you for joining me today for this edition of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I say me, but if you hear that snoring in the background, you know it hasn't been just me. It's also been my compatriot, my companion for so many of these episodes, Bruno, the wondrous, always snoring, rumbling French bulldog. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and this has been episode number 25 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Before I go, I just want to give you a couple of quick reminders. DC Comics News is now on all the major podcast platforms, which means you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. If you haven't yet, please head over, subscribe to the podcast, and then rate and review. I think we're five stars. And if you think we're not, well, that's an opinion I'd love for you to share and comment so we can have a great discussion and maybe even learn how to make things just a little bit better. You can tag us with any of those comments or thoughts on social media in response to this or any of the episodes you've heard. Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube, all you need is the at symbol and DC Comics News. That's at capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N, E-W-S. I'm also going to encourage you to come back on a regular basis to catch the weekly episodes of the DC Comics News podcast, where we gather weekly with editors, writers, reviewers from DC Comics News to talk about all the news, events, and discoveries coming out from and about DC Comics and the universe they've built. I'm also going to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to remember that when you do subscribe, you'll not only never miss an episode of DC Comics News Podcast or The Spinner Rack, but you'll also be one of the first to hear the soon-to-appear and upcoming podcast featuring my good friend, compatriot, and co-podcaster on the DC Comics News podcast, Steve J. Ray, who will be launching his very own podcast featuring a weekly episode-by-episode breakdown of Batman the Animated Series. I know that given his love for the character and his knowledge and historical research, that that's going to be a really enjoyable and informative experience every episode. Make sure you don't miss out by subscribing now to DC Comics News Podcast. And the only thing I have left to remind is the same thing I've ended every episode up until now, and that's to always read more comics. Thanks so much for joining me for 25 episodes. Looking forward to sharing 25 more with you. See you next week for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack.